Hello, and welcome back to Black Thoughts, a project by Podcasting is Praxis. I'm James, and my pronouns are they and them. I don't say this for no reason, I say it because it's directly relevant to what I'm going to be talking about tonight. For the past few weeks, a subject has been rattling around inside my brain. I've been thinking and turning something over in a way that is not so much that I've been trying to make sense of it as I've been trying to understand how to express it. How exactly do I want to convey it? And the subject, as it turns out, is about masculinity. It's about what it means to be a man. And specifically, what being a man means in light of everything I know from the anarchist left. For those of you who are just joining us, Black Thoughts is a podcast that gives you an anarchist take on whatever the given subject is. That's it. There is nothing definitive about this. I'm not speaking on behalf of every anarchist, nor am I speaking for the entire left. But in so much as I am speaking for myself, talking about masculinity is kind of difficult. Because as you listen to my voice, you'll know a few different things. One is that, very obviously, I, you know, I clock to most people as being a man. I spent most of my adult life as a man. I was raised under the assumption that I would grow to be a man. I was a boy before I was a man. And that was long before I finally came to the understanding that no, I'm not. I'm not any of those things. And so to talk about masculinity is deeply personal. And so this episode is going to be a little unusual because it's a mixture of both the semi-objective political and social understanding of the world that I like to share, and also the highly subjective, highly personal account of my own relationship with masculinity. But it's in service to a good cause because I think increasingly people are looking at the left and looking at masculinity and asking, what does the left offer men? What does the left provide as a vision of masculinity? And I think that's an interesting topic. I think it's one that's worth exploring. But getting to the answers in it is going to be a little bit of a circuitous route. So I'd invite you to please bear with me as we descend into the depths of what it means to be a man from the view of an anarchist. So listening to me, you won't just have clocked that I present in a masculine way. If you're good with accents, you might also have noticed that I come from the west coast of Scotland. I'm Scottish, and that carries through my accent. It's not the only thing going on in my accent, but for purposes of this, let's just run with it. As someone from the west coast of Scotland, I've grown up with a very particular model of masculinity. Scotland's men, particularly the men on the West Coast, are kind of known for being your very standard, you know, meat and potatoes, emotionally unavailable, kind of taciturn men. It's a general kind of, is an attitude of masculinity that's kind of baked into our culture. And growing up, that's what I was presented with. I honestly think that's starting to change. I think that, you know, things are opening up a bit and there's new ideas of what it is to be a man and be Scottish are kind of taking hold, but that's a whole other conversation that I'm not particularly interested in getting into. What I'm trying to get across here and what I'm interested in kind of exploring is this idea of what does it mean to be a man as it was demonstrated and explained to me growing up? Because the interesting thing about where I come from is I think the the archetype, the you know, the pattern, the ideal of masculinity 
which is given in the west coast of Scotland, or was given, is kind of very similar to the archetype that's elsewhere across kind of, you know, the world as we know it. I, certainly, like, when I've gone to America, I've seen a lot in common. I've seen a lot of direct parallels, starting with that one I mentioned, meat and potatoes, you know, very plain, very, you know, straightforward. And when we talk about, you know, little symbols like that, when we say a guy is, is meat and potatoes, we mean he's kind of plain, he doesn't have any kind of flourishes, you know, he, he likes his, you know, his staples, if you will. You know, he likes his potatoes, if it's starchy, they're nice. He likes his meat. He's a meat eater. And kind of embedded in that is this first kind of idea of masculinity. You know, if you are what you eat in our kind of culture, then there's this whole idea of like a man eats meat. He likes his steak, you know? That's one of the first kind of things that we can sort of tease apart and kind of go, that's a bit interesting. Why is that a particular focus? Why is that something that gets associated with masculinity? I'm kind of of the view that if you grow up being told you're a man, or that you're going to be a man, there are certain experiences that are universal that every man is going to have encountered at one point or another. And I'd actually put this to my audience, you know, you listening here today. If you were raised to be a man, then does any of this ring true to you? At some point in your early years, you did something, you explored something, you tried something, and you were told, don't do that, it's girly. Or some variation of that. You might have been told something much more harsh. You might have been told, forgive the language, you might have been told, oh, don't do that, it makes you look like a fag. You might have heard something like that. I think more or less every man has had some kind of experience of this. I think it's actually concretely part of masculinity. At some point, you went up to brushed against the line of what it is to be a man in our culture, and we're kind of, you know, your hand was slapped and you were kind of pushed away from it and told, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Then later, you'll have had an experience where you wanted to express your emotions. Again, probably as a child, you know, where you've cried and you've been told, oh, don't cry, be a man. Or boys don't cry. Words to that effect. At some point, as you start to get older you will have been in an experience of some kind, some kind of social experience where you expressed intimacy, care, friendship towards another boy, and you will have been shamed for it. You have been told, no, uh, you know, what are you, gay? Or, you know, we don't do that, or words to that effect. Why? Or that's only men do that with girls. And it will have been something innocuous too, genuinely innocuous. It will have been something that there wasn't really any meaning behind it but it will have kind of carried that connotation, probably around hugging. Like, that's where it tends to come up a lot is, you know, uh, one guy hugs another, one male child hugs another and gets told, you know, that's kind of gay. Yeah? So already you're kind of getting this idea that there's these universal experiences and they all kind of relate to actions which men aren't allowed to undertake. But there will have been subtler ones too. You'll have discovered, as you grew older, that expressing too much of how you felt, expressing too much of your emotions, that was frowned upon. That was kind of feminine. Similarly, with clothing and other 
items of expression, not just not acts you do, but like you know expression. Um, you'll you'll have questioned whether something looks too girly. Hmm? And this kind of this starts very young, like you know guys aren't allowed to like the color pink. That will have been a big one. Pink is for girls. Yeah. All of these policing actions where someone has come and said to you, hey, listen, no, you're not allowed to be that. You're a man. Men don't do that. I think they're universal experiences growing up being a man. I mean, not the only ones. Like, as you get into your teenage years, you'll have been encouraged one way or another to compete, you know? That it, it might not have come from outside, it might have come from your peers rather than from your, you know, adults around you. But one way or another, you, you will have been encouraged to kind of stand up for yourself, uh, be a man, um, you know, to take part in sports particularly it tends to be a big vehicle, you know. Um, got to participate, got to, to demonstrate your skill and finesse and all this kind of stuff. Put yourself up against someone else. There's a thread in that. Young boys are, in, are encouraged pointedly to play sports, primarily, you know, team sports, but there are, there are always team sports that have an opponent. And it's, it's something so almost innocuous that we almost take it for granted, you know? Oppositional sports are something that we, we just kind of, it's, it's the water of our culture, you know? It's the air we breathe. We don't really think too much about it, but the same pressure isn't put on women, interestingly. They're not encouraged to take part in competitive sport in the same way as boys are. They have the option to, but curiously, they didn't always. That was something that came about all the time. And when they were invited into competitive sports, it started with sports just for them. And then over time, when we were allowed into the other sports, there were women's categories added for the most part. You know, difference between, say, uh, netball and basketball. Netball, men don't play netball, right? Boys don't play netball. That's for girls. Interesting. And so kind of the story, if you will, of growing up under this veil of manhood is one of constantly being told there are certain behaviours, certain actions, which are taboo. But that is, if you will, one side of it. There's another side. And the other side is the shame that goes with it, and your participation in that shame, in that ridicule. If, um, you know, if growing up, you were told, don't do something, and you were, you were taught it with a certain contempt, you know, oh, don't do that, it makes you look gay, right? Then it kind of followed that the, the shame that was put on you, that was taught to you, would find its repetition and its expression if you saw someone else doing something similar. One of my memories you know, that I have from high school, is of all the guys, and this wasn't directed particularly at me, um, there was there was one guy in our year who it got directed a lot at, and, you know, I feel really sad in retrospect for. Um, there was this whole thing where, like, the guys would constantly be throwing that around, you know? They'd constantly be hurling around this idea of masculinity, and this taboo of, you know, you don't want to be gay, you don't want to be effeminate. Because that's interesting, isn't it? There's, there's already a, a little kind of thing there. To be gay is to be effeminate. To be gay is to be a man who takes on feminine qualities. Interesting. And in this kind of way, there, there'd be this kind of 
internal policing. It starts, you know, you're taught it by adults, but pretty soon it latches on and it then gets reproduced within the, the young group of boys. Funny story, I remember, um, I remember at a certain age in primary school, someone came in to teach the class uh, Spanish and to go through Spanish activities. Um, and one of the lessons they tried to teach is how, you know, a greeting is done in Spain about the, the kissing on each cheek. None of the boys were willing to do that, were willing to, to pair up with girls and give that a go. Now, this is very curious because obviously there is a component which we'll get to of masculinity about your relationship with girls and with women and, and all the things that go with it. But why is it that boys of around 10, 11 years old, they all kind of en masse kind of retreated away from this and didn't want to do it? Well, it's because I put it to you that at that age, they're taking on performative masculinity and it, it seems kind of effeminate behavior to their, you know, undifferentiated, still learning minds. It's pretty funny. It's really funny. And it's not, it's, it, I, I hasten to add, it wasn't rooted in kind of sexual embarrassment. That sort of side of things comes later. But there, there was this definite current of, you know, don't do any behaviors that could be perceived as effeminate, as feminine, which includes acts of intimacy more generally. Hugging, kissing, you know, touch generally. Here's one for you. I put it to you that one of the universal experiences of being a man is the experience of being taught there's only certain ways you're allowed to touch and be touched. That there's certain kinds of behaviours are only permitted under certain circumstances. And these circumstances are by and large restricted to your relationship as a man with women. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. In teenage years, it gets even more complicated because at this point, puberty kicks in and, you know, some men discover they're gay um, and that's a whole fraught situation for reasons we've kind of briefly covered there. But most, um, most are heterosexual, just going by the, you know, statistical numbers. And as a consequence, most have to form a relationship with the other gender, as it's put to them, with women. And this is kind of fraught because, you know, you spent a whole lot of time being taught that everything you are is what, to a large extent, you're not, you know? You don't do certain behaviours, you don't express yourself in a certain way, you don't do this, that, or the next thing. You're kind of constrained, and you're taught these constraints, and shown how to be a man. And then you're introduced to women properly, and seeing them as, a, as an object of desire, and very much emphasis on object, we'll come back to that too, and you're taught how to attempt to relate to them. And it's kind of interesting because here now you're presented with someone who is all these things you've been taught not to be. And as a consequence, they are kind of otherized just by virtue of the fact that they don't have ground in common with the experience you've been taught. You've been taught to be a certain way. Here's this whole type of people who are taught not just, you know, freely to, to be the things you're not allowed to be, but actually taught the opposite. They're taught not to be like you, because there's a flip side to this we will get to. And now you have to form a, a relationship with them. And at a base level, I think, you know, part of the 
the dehumanization of women comes in just from this, just from the fact that, you know, you've been taught to be a certain way, this is what you've been taught to know, and now you're being presented with a people who are taught the opposite. And you're trying to understand and interpret this with the faculties and experience of a child. It follows that otherization kind of takes place. And, you know, we can, we can go into how and why that takes place. I've covered it a little bit in a, in a previous episode where I've talked about how you get these kind of hierarchies of oppression are formed. And I know that is a term that can be a little bit of a mouthful, but it's this whole idea that, you know, for one person to rule other people, you kind of need to play the other people against themselves um, and divide them. And one of the easiest ways to do it is among like very obvious things you can just identify with a glance, and that kind of includes like you know physical sex, and so you get into you know the beginnings of gender hierarchy and you know later racism and all the rest of it. But like at, at core, it's less here and now. It's less that I'm trying to talk about why, but more just about that subjective experience, the masculine experience of first being exposed to women. And then there come the other lessons, which increasingly I think are getting called out and people are kind of saying, well, this is very toxic and poisonous, etc. But there's there's other lessons that come in about how you relate to women and about how you relate to women reflecting on who you are as a man. We should talk a little bit about the so-called incels. We should talk a little bit about men who are defined by their relationship with women. So again, I've talked about incels in a previous episode, but to kind of to summarize very briefly, the involuntary celibates are essentially a kind of political group of men. They might not think of themselves as political, but they've adopted a kind of political attitude who cannot help but define their status and self-worth by their relationship with women. Women are, for want of a better word, a kind of status-affirming commodity to them. It's not that women are people. It's that they are a kind of being that these men, through their relationship with, know and define themselves. And it's not entirely their fault. I know, right? Everyone obviously is the master of their own soul and to a lesser or greater extent gets to decide what they do with the experiences they have. But it's also kind of hard for people to pull themselves out of a straitjacket when that straitjacket has been sewn around them with really noxious and corrosive beliefs, some of them laid in from a very young age. So yeah, a little bit of sympathy here, a tiny little bit. Because part of the male experience part of the masculine experience is being taught that, you know, men who are winners are good with women, that they have a woman, that they get laid frequently, that they have sex frequently, that, you know, some of them are players, that they, you know, they can have their selection of any woman, that their status is defined by how desirable they are to women and by their conquest following of those women, you know? A man who nails a lot of women as the, you know, stick would go, um, as a player. The standard is the opposite for women, women who sleep with lots of men, etc., etc. But you get this idea. There's this idea of conquest, this idea of possession, of ownership, of notches on the bedpost, that is kind of taught to young men. 
women are there as objects to be pursued and the acquisition of them will provide a kind of status to the man. And to not possess these things is to be worthless. But this is all the kind of social read on it. There's, a, there's another layer to it and one I've kind of hinted at before. I said before that you know one of the experiences of being men is you're taught about touch and the appropriateness of touch and when it's okay to share certain experiences and when it's not. And young men are taught pretty much universally that they're only allowed to express certain emotional intimacy with their romantic partners. They're only allowed to hold and touch and be kissed by a romantic partner, a woman. Maybe to a little lesser extent, maybe the, like, you know, the mum might be allowed to give them a hug and, you know, um, give them a kiss on the forehead, that kind of thing. But as they get older, that in turn is played down and is kind of decried as being kind of wrong, being infantile. You know, you get that guy's being described as a mama's boy, that kind of thing. Um, true story, I actually, you know, I don't really have much experience of that side of things because my mother died when I was 11. So that's a whole world I missed out on. And said I was raised by my father. And, you know, if you want to do your armchair psychology thing, you could read a lot about how I ended up from that. But anyway, I digress. In this way, like, men as a class of people are essentially taught that the limited human contact and emotional expression they're allowed comes mostly in private, not in public, but mostly in private with women who are their lovers. And that's kind of it. There are other limited expressions, of course, particularly around team sports. It's okay to hug um, and to dance around and to express emotion as part of a team sport event or as part of a team, part of a crew, just, you know, one of the guys joshing around. It's all very ritualized and formalized. You, you know, you're not allowed to just, like, hug your guy friend. You, you know, it's not allowed, you know. And worse than this, it all becomes woven up so that there's this kind of intermingling of emotional experiences, like, you know, emotional comfort, emotional expression, with sexual attraction. Because here's the thing, like, if you're only allowed to express your emotions truly, deeply, intimately, you know, without a filter, and if you're only allowed to have certain forms of physical touch, I'm not talking about sexual ones, I'm not talking about having sex, I'm talking about hugs, I'm talking about, like, friendly touches, I'm talking about that kind of physical intimacy. If you're only allowed to have that in the context of your sexual relationship with a woman, then these things become blurred together. And so for many men, these are in themselves sexual acts, which is why, which is why you will often see like, you know, guys in like sport events, or whatever, and people say, oh, this is kind of homoerotic, you know? It's because the erotic component of their relationship with another person has become bound up in these pretty normal, ordinary kind of emotional expressions to the extent that they become hard to unpick. You know, guys learn to associate certain forms of intimacy with sex. Essentially, forms of intimacy which to women are not necessarily sexual, to men always are. And therefore, it's not really much of a surprise when, you know, many men start to make friends with women and they misread a lot of the signals they get. Because the woman's just, you know, behaving with a man like she would with a fellow woman, where there's no, like, sexual component or whatever to it. It's just, it's just intimacy. It's just friendship. 
you know? Um, whereas the guy has been taught that, well, this is something you're only allowed in a sexual context. And so they end up very confused and hurt when it's later revealed that the woman just sees them as a friend. And also, because we've talked about that whole conquest thing, it leads to a kind of feeling of uh, emasculation. Men failing in their conquests and their pursuits is seen as a mark against their status, their very being as men. So taking all of this, what I've just said about kind of, you know, the, the, the beginnings of being, you know, uh, an incel who's entirely defined by this stuff and putting it in context with the previous stuff I can interest you to about how you're taught to be a man. I kind of put it to you that the package of being a man in society is to a lesser or greater extent a kind of lonely experience. And that loneliness and the sense of shame and emasculation that gives rise to that shame are what can lead to that, frankly, bitter resentment that ultimately drives people to, to be, you know, as we describe them incels, being very angry and blaming women and deciding that society is at fault. Because, because uh, anytime you are shamed, you have to make a decision. And the decision is, is this really my fault? Or am I being held to an unfair standard? And if I'm being held to an unfair standard, where does that standard come from? What society gives rise to it? And, you know, in this way, the personal experience becomes a kind of political experience, because as soon as you start having opinions about how society should or should not be ordered, you know, how we should structure the world around us, where power should lie and who should get to wield it, to what end, these become political positions. And that's why kind of being an incel leads into this whole political misogyny, this kind of, you know, um, contempt for and hatred of women's liberty and, and all that kind of goes with it. But that's, again, you can listen to the previous episode on, you know, turfs and incels if you want to get more of an insight into that. I'm not really going there and I'm not having a go at these people because it's not really the focus. The focus is about masculinity. And so what we come to is this understanding of masculinity as a lonely, removed experience that fundamentally is defined by what you're not allowed to do. And then, as a consequence of your successfully occupying and, and being this kind of person, you know, you occupy this role, you fulfill it, you perform it, you're then given certain privileges within society. We should probably talk about this idea of male privilege, because I think it's very misunderstood. And in particular, I think it upsets a lot of people to hear male privilege described when, in practice, they don't really feel like they get much. They actually feel more of everything I've just described up to this point. So, let's talk about male privilege. When we talk about privilege, it's a, another one of these words that's maybe not the best fit. Because, you know, if you describe someone as coming from privilege, you're expecting someone who was like born with a silver spoon in their mouth, who's got tons of money, who's free to do whatever they want. You know, they're someone with real strong advantage. And the practical experience of privilege as it exists in our society 
doesn't really match this vision of privilege as being this thing where you're you're, you're you know accorded these these great uh, you know advantages and powers. Often, privilege as it exists in our society is actually it would be better defined as not being subject to certain rules and certain oppressions. That'd be kind of a, a better way to put it, I think. It's not so much that you get an advantage so much as you don't experience a disadvantage. And in this way, men do have a kind of privilege, but really it's, you know, by being men, they are exempted from certain burdens and pains which are put upon others. And that then, you know, that leads to problems because you get men who they're not experiencing some of the obstacles that women face, right? And we'll talk about this. I'm, I'm not just going to leave this alone. We'll, we'll get into what examples of what that can be in a minute. But the men, they don't experience these things, but they do experience all the loneliness and all the social expectation that's placed on them. And when someone says to them, oh, you've got male privilege, they then get very angry about it because they think, well, my life is utterly shit. I don't have any privilege whatsoever. In fact, from my perspective, you seem to be the one who's privileged because you get to have, you know, emotional relationships and you get to have uh, your choice of um, partners. And everything they say is kind of framed through this idea of what it is to be a man and therefore what it is to be, to be otherwise. Do you notice that Going back to incels for a second, a lot of incels take a lot of time to express how women get their choice of partners. And it's very interesting because to the incel, you know, having a partner is what conveys status. Therefore, you know, women are the really privileged ones because they get their choice of partners, which isn't true. Well, I know plenty of women who crush on guys who they absolutely can't get in a million years or who just don't know how to relate to guys whatsoever, even though they would like to, and they really struggle with it. And similarly, and this is kind of importantly, women don't judge their worth necessarily by that. Necessarily. There's actually there's a bit of complexity to that, but I'm focusing on men here, um, rather than, you know, what it is to be a woman and the, you know, women are subject to other pressures, which we're gonna to get to in more detail. But just for the point of you know this argument, there's this whole idea that incels have in their head that women are the ones who are privileged because they're not subject to these kind of pressures and because, you know, they're not the ones who pursue, they just get to be pursued and then, you know, choose one from the crowd to be theirs, etc., etc. And it's because they imagine that women's status is a kind of inverse inversion, a kind of reflection of their own, like, status and how they accrue it. And it's not at all. It's all kind of projection. So to kind of bring it back around to this idea of privilege, privilege is this kind of interesting word that, as I've said, it doesn't fit. It's best described as an exemption from oppression. And let me give you a really simple example of it. There is a wage gap. Um, if you are a woman and you perform a job, then according to statistics, according to the cold hard evidence, you will almost always be paid less than uh, a similarly kind of established and you know experienced man would in the same position. And not by a little, by quite a lot. My own partner, um, you know, she was chronically underpaid for years. Still is, actually, though recently she got a pay rise and is, you know, a little bit further up than she was. And it's it's kind of ridiculous. It's just kind of baked in. Women get paid less. But more than this, but 
you know, there are other examples where men have a kind of implicit assumption the world is built for them. And this is, this is a real form of privilege. It's like, in our society, if you are a man, then our society is kind of built around you, and the needs of women are an afterthought. Period poverty is a subject that has received a lot of scrutiny in recent years. As things currently stand, people who menstruate have their periods roughly every 28 days or so. Uh, for the purposes of this you know, discourse, I'm obviously talking about the gender dichotomy and how, like, essentially, um, women are the oppressed class. And for the purposes of this like, little section, just want to be clear, um, obviously, you know, when I talk about women, I'm including the broad penumbra of people who've been told they're women by society in one way or another, and therefore are subject to... Um, you know, mistreatment or uh, coercion um, as a consequence, particularly with regard to period poverty. Anyway, as a consequence to this, uh, you know, our society has just kind of taxed women by saying, oh, you, you have to buy products in order to be able to, you know, live comfortably and cleanly whenever this happens. Similarly, though, there's this kind of, this kind of flip side where, like, a lot of the reproductive health-related stuff for men is just kind of covered. Um, perhaps a more egregious example and better example would be around uh, contraception versus impotency medication. Particularly in the States, you'll find that contraception is, you know, it's a politicized issue, but also it's just generally, you know, there's, there's arguments about whether it should be covered, whereas impotence medication is covered much more freely. Um, even within, I mean, here's an interesting fact for you that not many people know. The, um, the, the pill, the, you know, female contraception, uh, do you know that that's actually based on science which was specifically kind of done to appeal to the Catholic Church? You can look this up. Um, the, the hormones that are in most pills, if you were to take them consistently, they wouldn't require women to have periods at all. And when they do actually bleed whilst they're on these pills, once every you know month or so, that's not actually a period. It's a kind of false period that's caused by the level of the, the, the pill they're taking dropping slightly. And this was put in by the guy who was producing the pill because he really wanted to sell it to the Catholic Church and get the Catholic Church's endorsement. And so he thought if he made it seem more natural by having like a period built into it, then it would be more accepted by the church. It's not actually based on science. And it's why there's different pills at a certain time of month that women take. Um, you know, they take the regular pill for most of the time, and there's like usually a three-day period where they take this other weaker dosage pill that causes them to have spotting. Um, and it's, it's purely to simulate a period. And that's there purely to appeal to um, the kind of ideas, this kind of, you know, traditional Christian patriarchal ideas of how a woman's reproductive system should work. Which kind of leads to this, this whole other thing, which is that in our society, women's reproduction is a heavily politicized topic. And what women are allowed and not allowed to do and how they should and shouldn't be doing it is this whole thing, whereas men's isn't. Because men's is the kind of default situation. The men's participation in you know, conception isn't regulated. And yeah, it's like, this is the, this is the form that privilege really takes. It's not having to deal with all this bullshit.
That, that's what it comes down to. It's not having to deal with less pay. It's not having to basically be taxed in order to live cleanly. It's not having to deal with government intrusion into how your reproductive health care actually works. If a guy wants a, mis wants a vasectomy, dead easy. If a woman wants the equivalent, it's an uphill struggle. And I know because one of my friends had to go through a whole process in order to get it done because she was convinced she could never have kids for a variety of different reasons. I won't you know, share the details. But getting to the point where they could tie her tubes so that she wouldn't have kids, uh, that required a huge battle. And she had to face down, even from the doctors she was seeing, which included other women, this whole idea of, oh, but what if you change your mind? Whereas I know guys who've gone and got vasectomies and it's not even a question. You know, it's just kind of like, all oh, right, well, you know, good for you sort of thing. Privilege, male privilege, is essentially being exempt from the bullshit oppression that others have to face. That's it. That's the whole of what it means. And so you can kind of see why I'm saying that this, this idea of privilege, it's a bad word. It doesn't really fit. It's not about privilege. It's about exemption from bullshit, from terror, from oppression. And more than anything else, male privilege is this privilege of just kind of the world being built around the assumption of you, you know, that you're welcome wherever you go, whereas others have to make it over certain hurdles in order to be welcomed in. And the problem with it is that so many guys, they don't know about these things, they don't experience or live these things, they don't have any frame of reference and so to them it's invisible then they hear the word privilege and they think well what privilege am i getting but there you go and so here we have this vision of masculinity as it exists in society which is is grim for a few different reasons and as a consequence it can be kind of alienating particularly from the left so let's let's talk about the left and how many men come toward it and what their first experiences of it are. So let's say you're a fairly ordinary guy, just, you know, you're a meat and potatoes kind of guy, but you're well-intentioned and you're kind of aware that there's some things in the world that are a bit kind of fucked up and maybe like, you know, minorities, women and others, yeah, it seems like they're getting a bit of a rough deal in some places, like your eyes have been opened, you've seen some things which are a bit, that are a bit difficult, that are a bit kind of, uh, you're not sure how you feel about that. And so you decide, you know what, maybe there's something else out there I should learn about. Maybe I should expand my horizons. Maybe I should, maybe I should change my politics or my position in society. I don't know. Let's, let's go exploring. And so you kind of approach the, the corpus of knowledge on the left, the, the, the whole body of like theory and ideas and just communities, and you try to get a handle on it. Dollars to donuts, one of the very first things you're going to encounter is this idea of male privilege. And as I've just articulated, it's a bad term, right? Because it's not really about privileges, it's about exemptions from kinds of oppression. That in itself is pretty off-putting, and I think... Honestly, that does more damage than anything else in getting men to run a million miles. But it's not the main, shall we say, problem that men face when they approach the left. Because as they kind of start to dig in, as they start to learn about the ways in which we're screwed over by the societies that we've constructed and are caught in, 
there is a kind of reckoning that has to happen. There is a kind of consideration that you have to give as to, well, if we if we kind of accept that people are kind of equally valid, that human experiences are diverse, and that's a good thing, and that, you know, it's perfectly fine for someone to be gay. Like, it's good, it's normal, it's a healthy part of human society. They've always been gay people, there always will be, who cares? And so too, if you then, you know, take the attitude that, well, you know, all these kind of things that we say are men only, maybe they're not, maybe, like, women can be assertive and can be X, Y, and Z, and maybe it's okay for men to feel a variety of different feelings, etc. And then, if you, if you, you know, go further into it and you start to get into the whole trans debate, and you start to go, well, I guess maybe, maybe some people can grow up feeling they're more like a man than they are a woman, or more like a woman than they are a man, despite what they've been told they are. I guess maybe, you know, that's, that's cool and good and fine. It starts to ask questions about, well, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a man? And here's the thing. In previous episodes of Black Thoughts, I've talked about how status is used to divide people and make them more rulable, but also, as an extension, how status is used to help people understand who they are. How people define themselves by their status within society. And I put it to you that the masculine role, more than any other, is the, like, the base, the er example of what it is to define yourself by your status. Because in the masculine, we have this role that exists to kind of be a, a recipient of status and, you know, to essentially have a, an exemption from oppression and to an extent, um, as a consequence of that exemption, the ability to reproduce that oppression on others who fall, you know, who are not male without comeback. Because that, that's like part of it, isn't it? It's like, you know, if you're exempt from this oppression then in order for that oppression to continue to exist, you are indeed encouraged to reproduce it on others. We have this role that is essentially defining of its status. To be a man is to not engage in certain behaviours, to be exempt from certain oppressions, and to be free to engage in other behaviours that reproduce this system. That's kind of what it is to be a man in many ways. I mean, if you kind of go down the route that people can transition their gender and thus you can have women who have penises and you can have men who have vaginas then you're left in this kind of position of going well if being a man isn't tied to biological sex if that isn't the basis of it then we have to kind of interrogate well what else is being a man and everywhere you look it starts to seem like it's kind of either a raw deal or a deal that's kind of raw, but that comes with massive perks if you're prepared to basically mistreat others to put yourself above them. And so here we arrive in the kind of sticky issue of why a lot of men run away from the left, I think. Because as they start to approach this point, they get very nervous. It's scary and kind of intimidating to have to ask yourself the question, well, who am I? What, what, what am I in light of all this gained understanding of this broader experience? What does it mean to be a man? Because I've been taught to be proud of myself as a man. 
And now I discover that many of the behaviors and things not only are damaging to others, but are actually kind of harmful to me. That actually, I do feel lonely, and it is something that I've pushed to the back of my head in many ways, but now I'm looking at it and going, oh, this is kind of unjust, but that then leaves me, if I, if I reject this, if I walk away from this, what, what am I? What's the vision of masculinity that the left offers to me? And then, then we have a problem. Because to be a man, I put to you, is actually not really inherent in any way, shape, or form. There's the biological sex that's male, there's the biological sex that's female, and all the things that directly proceed from this, all the sexual dimorphisms. But there's a fundamental line that's drawn around these, of all the things which are inherent in the flesh. And then everything else that surrounds our ideas of gender is purely cultural. And that's terrifying to you if you have been taught that who you are as a person is defined by these things. And perhaps you're not convinced. So let's talk about oppression and let's talk about identity and oppression. Apartheid. It's a political system where you have one class of people are in, in, insisted by society as being superior to another, and the two sides are divided and drawn apart and shown to be categorically distinct, with one side giving privileges over the other. If we look at apartheid South Africa, you see whites versus blacks, and you see this playing out. Um, you see the way, essentially, the white communities were physically divided from the black communities, but also divided in terms of their ability to participate in the political process, their ability to receive certain rights, their treatment by the state as it existed. On all different levels, there was a complete division between these two sides. And not just in you know apartheid South Africa, if we look at the history of the United States... Not too long ago, we had divided, you know, white versus black populations with terrible laws put in place to kind of enforce this, leading to perversities like, you know, different drinking fountains, fountains for white people to drink from versus fountains for black people to drink from. And in this kind of division, this apartheid system, you have a class that's oppressed and a class that's not oppressed. And the class that's not oppressed is lauded and told that they have a kind of default and given the privilege of being exempt from oppression, but also the privilege to be able to reproduce that oppression. And it's also policed. It's policed quite strongly. There's certain behaviours you're not allowed to engage in. Growing up, my father was an absolute arsehole, right? And so I, I say this as preface. Uh, he would occasionally when drunk, um, bust out a phrase. Whenever I was I was doing something that he didn't approve of, he'd bust out this phrase, and I apologised to everyone, but he'd bust out this phrase and say, oh, you go and play the white man. 
shameful, right? But it was this whole idea of that virtue, goodness, being the right way was being white, and he kind of learned that. Now, he was born in 1937, so there's a whole generational thing going on there a little bit, but he was also just a stone-cold arsehole, right? Um, this kind of attitude is indicative of what you get in apartheid societies, where there's like one side is politically excluded and controlled and demeaned and ruled over and lorded over by the other. And, you know, if you want to read up on it, you'll read some really tremendous terrors. And I say apartheid rather than slavery because I want to make clear, just because the people aren't enslaved, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're free. You know, there was the slavery of the South, which then gave way to the apartheid of Jim Crow. And to a lesser or greater extent, the echoes of it still live today. In fact, I'd say that in a large sections of America, a lot of large sections of America, you know, these kind of things are still ongoing. It's a matter of degree. But its, it's root is the idea that there's one class of people who have a default, who are taught to behave in certain ways, and there's one class of people who aren't and who are oppressed. And they understand themselves through these identities, or they're taught, rather, to understand themselves through these identities. I understand that people might be very uncomfortable with this, but at root, the relationship between masculine and feminine is kind of the same. Now, I understand there's a lot of people who really don't like this. And, you know, if you're listening to this and you're one of them, you're probably very upset and you've got lots of counter arguments. But I want to invite you to pause a second. I really want you to invite you to pause. and I want you to play a little game with me. I want you to imagine you're an alien and that you've come to Earth and you're surveying the human race and you have to write a report on how human beings organise themselves and what the major distinctions are between their different population groups, etc. And so you start with, you know, you'll start by describing physical characteristics. And there are, you know, there are physical biological distinctions between the different sexes, you know. Um, there's the biological distinctions of men and testosterone and all that goes with it, as it's traditionally understood. Then there's the traditional distinctions of women, as it's understood, with estrogen and, you know, uh, wider hips and all that goes with it. Um, and maybe you'll, you'll write a bit about this. But as we've kind of come to understand, these sexual characteristics are kind of separate from the the gender performance that takes place in society, how people are taught to be themselves, how men are taught to hold themselves apart, to say less, to compete, how women are taught to, you know, hold themselves to a different standard, one that is in many ways deferential to men. I want you to kind of look at this, and, and genuinely, I want you to answer me a question. For everything you write down, describing the masculine performance of, you know, things men do, and everything that's written down that women do, I want you to look me in the eye and tell me, honestly and truthfully, that there are no women who exhibit those masculine behaviours, and that there are no men who exhibit those feminine behaviours. And therefore I want to ask you, where do they come from? With a wide enough and long enough view of history, you come to understand that gender roles are this kind of cultural, social, political construction 
that are built on sexual dimorphism. We have sexual dimorphism in the human race, and to this sexual dimorphism, a lot of cultural signifiers have been attached. And over time, these have been built into identities, which have then been formed into the basis for a kind of hierarchical oppression. And the fundamental problem we have is that it's the problem of articulating to a class of people who've been taught to be a certain way as a means of knowing themselves, and thereby to engage in certain behaviours that reproduce this kind of whole coercive institution, we face the problem of trying explaining to them that actually the idea of man and woman as gender roles really only exist in relation to each other, and they only really exist in relation to each other to divide each other apart. And this is, this is the problem we come to. A lot of people will draw short of this and will say, well, the idea of masculinity should just fuck off. But no, no, it's it's this whole idea of oppressor versus the oppressed, of you know the person who's imbued with the ability to inflict oppression on others and exemption from that oppression versus those who are, are taught to kind of receive that. Those who are taught to pursue versus those who are taught to be pursued. The dominant versus the submissive. The masculine versus the feminine. They exist in relationship with each other. But their actual basis is purely a kind of social reproduction. There's biology, sure, and I'm not denying there's like a biological reality, you know, underneath all of us. We all have our sex. But that sex and its construction to gender is something that we've societally made up. And you know it's made up because there are people who buck the rule, who don't fit into it, for whom it's not inherent. And there always have been. And more than this, if you look throughout history, there's been many different ideas of what it is to be masculine and feminine across time. Men used to dress very brightly. And then one day, someone, some trendsetter said, oh, dressing brightly is effeminate. And suddenly it stopped because it was more important to police the gender boundary than it was to engage in the expression. And so understanding this kind of relationship, we then have to ask, well, okay, if this is what an anarchist, and perhaps by extension the broader left, are really driving towards this idea that gender is this social contingent thing. It's this kind of performance that we've all grown up and learned. And in many ways, it's deeply damaging to all participants in the terms that it alienates them from parts of who they could be. You know, every little boy who grows up and who innately enjoys being performative and dramatical and, you know, sweeping about the place and playing with dolls and is taught, no, you're not allowed to be that. And every girl who grows up wanting to, you know, climb trees and do traditionally masculine activities and is taught, no, you're not allowed to do that. And every boy who feels the need to touch and be touched, to share and be known and seen and is told, no, you're only allowed to do that under very specific circumstances. Like, there's something kind of damaging in this apartedness that we put in, in this apartheid that we, you know, have developed off of gender. And the performance of it hurts us and leaves us very alone. If you accept all of this, then you come to the question, well, what does the left offer men? And that's hard. And I think we should talk a little bit about that, maybe to close us out. People fundamentally are looking for some assurance that they're okay, that there's a way to be that's okay, and that 
you know, it, life isn't necessarily going to be hard for them. People are just looking to know, look, I'm all right. I can be all right, but everything's fine. More than anything, when they look for leadership, when they look for guidance, when they look for answers, they're looking for someone to take away their dread and fear, to reassure them and show them a better way to live, a way that's happier, a way that makes them feel more themselves, more whole, more at peace. And so when we talk about men coming to the left looking for answers, what we're really saying is men are looking for some version of themselves they can be that's okay, where they feel calm and fine and at peace, and where they're not bothered by feelings of guilt or shame, where they know themselves and are at peace with themselves, and they're not necessarily hurting other people. Because I generally think that what draws people to the left is the realisation that others suffer, and perhaps that oneself is complicit in this suffering, that perhaps you're reproducing it, and looking for some answer to this problem. And so when men come to the left, they're looking for that. They're looking, who is it I can be that is at peace in myself and that isn't harming others? And the problem they face, as I've articulated, is coming to understand that, oh, the whole concept of gender identity is this layer that's put on top of people to divide them apart from each other based on an arbitrary physical characteristic, and that is imbued with this great weight by society that precisely prescribes how you're allowed to express yourself, and thus how you're allowed to both know others and be known by them. And this is ingrained deep in us from a very young age. It starts incredibly young. And so when you, you come to the left from this position, there's many people who kind of go, oh shit, I know I just refuse to accept any of that. I can't. Because to accept it is to undermine their entire understanding of themselves. And that's the opposite of peace. Worse, perhaps their first contemplating that actually everything that's masculine, everything that you've been told is great about being masculine, is actually really in a roundabout way either personally immiserating or responsible for the immiseration of others. And that's rough. That's hard, man, to be told that. To not just be told that, but to begin to understand it and accept it, to take it on. That's not easy. And that, truthfully, is what it seems like the left offers. It offers an annihilation of manhood, so it seems. Worse, if you're, if you're not fully into it, if you kind of are only partially aware of these kind of contradictions and misconstruction of gender and, you know, the oppression that goes with it, then you get this kind of half-baked version whereby men are a problem but women are fine. When actually, sorry, both of these gender constructs exist in a, a, a kind of antagonism with each other, they are necessary. You don't get the masculine without the feminine. The definition of masculine depends on the definition of feminine, and the definition of feminine depends on the masculine. And while it is true, the feminine is the kind of vic uh, victim-oppressed class, if you will, in this kind of gender apartheid that is constructed, that doesn't necessarily mean it's good that it should exist. 
but this half-baked version ends up saying, well, men suck and women rule. Which isn't... that's not true. Women are made to suffer just the same. It's just that women aren't taught necessarily in quite the same way as men to understand themselves through status, and the ones that are, well, they tend to... <laughs> their concept of their self-status and self-knowledge being based on their gender lends them to be kind of turf-like, as I've discussed in a previous episode, to, you know, be very hostile to, you know, um, gender transition, and as a consequence, you know, then generally not... They're not the sort of people who feel warmly about the ideas that the left espouses. But this is the thing. What is it that the left is offering people if it's not this kind of gender annihilation and, by extension, this self-annihilation? What is it that is being offered? And it's only by accepting, I think, this full story, this, this full appreciation that actually there's an antagonism inherent in masculine versus feminine and it kind of is about this kind of oppression of putting people in boxes of allowing one group of people to lord over another to, of dividing us all from each other by arbitrary and convenient means it's only when you kind of fully commit to kind of getting this but you can start to answer the question what does the left offer men and what the left offers men is the same as what the left offers women it offers freedom. In my view, in an anarchist view, if you come to this political position and this understanding of how our society is constructed, and if you interrogate gender deeply enough, what you are essentially offered in return is the freedom to be yourself, is the permission to look at all the times you were told you're not allowed to be that. That you shouldn't be that. That it's shameful to be that. To look at all of these times and to know that it's bullshit. It's freedom from having to be something you don't want to be. And the cost of this freedom is accepting that the oppression that you were born into, you have to give it up. You have to reject it. And it's a lot easier for one side, the victims, to reject it than it is for the other side, the ones who've been born into the oppression, the ones who've been born to be oppressors. It's a lot easier to reject the system if you've got the, you know, shittier end of the stick, but... I actually think men have a pretty shitty end as well. I don't think it's as clear-cut. I think the vast majority of men I've met are pretty miserable at heart because, because they're not allowed to, to engage in emotional closeness. They're not allowed to put that guard down without other men ridiculing them. Sad thing is, I know a lot of men on the left who this is... In, inherently kind of a part of them and they don't know how to put it down and they don't know how to be emotionally vulnerable and honest they just don't know how it's, it's alien to them they've been trained to be this other thing and the ones that do the ones that gradually realize many of them you know i've seen have gone well um i guess i'm not a man anymore 
it begs the question, you know, am I non-binary as this distinct thing or am I non-binary because I've just taken a long, hard look at what it is to be a man and realised that that's not me because I, I decline to contain myself? And the honest answer is I don't know how you define that. I, I don't even know how I define it. I just know that all my life, every time I tried to be a man, even when I was successful, it was hollow and I was unhappy. And when I suddenly one day realized I don't have to be that, suddenly everything became easier. Suddenly I was free to just be myself. And it's kind of nice. But here's the thing, I don't think you have to necessarily commit to non-binary identity to do that. I really don't. A lot of people do, even if they're not quite consciously aware that that's how they're doing it and what they're doing. But I don't think you have to. I think you can call yourself a man and continue with some of the social trappings of masculinity and the assumptions that go with it. And it's not necessarily a big problem. But you do have to give up certain things, certain behaviours and patterns. You have to kind of let them go. And that's the, that's the rub of it. You can only be free to be who you are if you're prepared to let go of the thing that confines you. Even when that thing that confines you, it might be something that you find beneficial in some ways. It's a cost of freedom. The freedom to be yourself requires the sacrifice of all that tells you who you are. And it means finding who you are. I think it's better. It's shameless, truly shameless. And it's guiltless. So long as you are not harming others, you're free to be who you want. That's the left's offer. But that means letting go of the tension. And that's a hard sell. Because there's lots of guys who, even if they're prepared to give up a lot of things, there's other things that they don't even understand are parts of themselves that they maybe might want to. That emotional closing off. It's a pain. It's really hard to let go. That right of assertion, that implicit kind of, I'm free to just kind of put myself forth into the world and others have to respond to it. That can be a hard one to let go too. And this is the, this is the catch. I honestly think the people who would most benefit from this are actually probably the incels because I think they're the most miserable it's just that their attachment to their idea of who they must be is way stronger than the part of them that desperately wants to find themselves. And rather than accept that, hang on, maybe this gender game is kind of rigged and who I'm told I must be to be successful, to be a man, is rubbish. Rather than do that, they, they, they cling to it and they become bitter because they're haunted by their own feelings of inadequacy next to it. Freedom's the only antidote to that, the freedom to kind of go, you know what, I don't have to. I don't have to be any particular thing. I get to be who I am. And maybe, maybe I, by nature, I'm actually just a bit taciturn and like I don't speak much. But that's okay. That's fine. I just don't have to be. I'm allowed to talk when I want to. 
And so you'll find, I think, on the whole, there are guys who, for whatever reason, probably I would put it down to nurture, are better fits for masculinity than others. They're, they're you know, more naturally inclined to just be the thing that society tells them to be. And then the ones who probably are, you know, least receptive to a lot of this, but the ones who are either struggling or who have some part of themselves that they want to share but feel that they can't, I think they're the ones the left really has something to offer, and what it offers them is the choice. Call yourself a man if you want. It's fine. Be whoever you want to be. It's fine. You're free. The cost is that no one tells you what it is to be who you are. And that's not lonely, unless you make it so. If you find your crowd, if you find your people, and you're able to express yourself and be accepted by them and know yourself through your relations to others, then it's great, it's fine. But if you're totally alone, then this offer is terrifying because... Without some definition, some societal overarching structure to tell you who you are, and without people around you that you can connect to, from whom you can know who you are, who are you? It takes a very strong person to be able to do that solely of themselves. What can the left do? The political left, the social left, the people of the left, what can they do? to make this easier? Well, I think, honestly, it's a simple case of talking about the downsides of different gender identities and explaining that no one has to be these ways. You don't have to be them. You don't have to perform in any particular way. The catch is you can't know yourself by your labels. You have to accept yourself not as a man or a woman, but as a human being, full of many different aspects of yourself that you only really discover through how they play out with the people around you. It's not exactly bite-sized, is it? It's not easy or simple. But ultimately, it's, it's honest, it's genuine. And when people talk about what the left offers versus what other political identities offer, including fascism. Inevitably, inevitably, what we're really talking about is about how the left is offering to dismantle the privilege that the right is offering to essentially reinforce and uphold. And they phrase it in material gains, in material forms. And one I saw recently is this whole idea that, you know, the fascism, they're offering people, you know, men will have a partner and they'll have children, no matter what. Whereas the left is offering hatred for men. But as I've just kind of unpacked at tedious length, it's not really the case at all. Rather, what's being offered by the fascist right is the very structures that create the loneliness that causes men to be miserable. Because it's the very holding themselves apart and being oblivious to the emotions of others that leads men to be estranged from women. It's the inability to treat women like people that makes it impossible for men to actually find partners 
We could talk a lot about the different factors that lead to incels, you know, being so lonely. But fundamentally, it's the very characteristics they so cleave to as an understanding of who they are that make them essentially unable to connect with others. The loneliness, the aloofness, the subjugation of women, the the treatment of relationships as in status affirming and transactional rather than an actual like, you know, intimate, tender, loving, emotional relationship with another human being. The desire for a partner who fulfills one's own needs, but not for a partner who has desires that one can fulfill. Like, this is what makes them so miserable. It's all one and the same. But you're just never going to be able to easily get across to them that, hey, this is what make, is making you so fucked up. And what you're being offered by the left is the ability to kind of just chill and be like, oh, maybe I don't need to be this way. Maybe I can find some other way to live. And that that in turn will actually make you less lonely by better enabling you to connect with others. It's a hard sell. And I guess the only way to really do it is just to live it, is to share it, is to talk about it. So... I guess in conclusion, we're left with a very simple question. When people say, what does the left have to offer men? We have to answer with the question, what do you want it to offer men? What is it you need? What is it you want? And listen. And look for the pain. And finding that pain, the answer is very simply, you don't have to keep hurting. That's it for Black Thoughts. Thank you for listening. We'll hopefully have another episode out before long. This one was put together quite quickly and outside the usual release schedule. I'd like to thank Alex for doing the edit, Carolyn and Gareth for giving me some feedback, and as ever, the music used with permission is by RJD2. Take care.